Uh, welcome to those of you who are now uh, joining us online. It's good to have you be a part of Freedom Online today. We're glad to have you worshiping with us through the internet. Uh, we are in a series right now that's entitled Back to Virtue. If you haven't been with us for the past two or three weeks, we're returning to reclaim some of the core virtues that define what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ in terms of your heart and your life. And it's not going to surprise you at all today, the virtue that we're going to, virtue that we'll be talking about today, and that is the virtue of gratitude. That's fitting on Thanksgiving week that we would be talking about that, but we didn't just grab it because it's Thanksgiving week, but because it is truly one of the most important virtues. In fact, Cicero, the uh, famed uh, philosopher and politician of uh, Rome from the first century BC said this that gratitude is not only the greatest of all virtues but it is the parent of all others now you may have to think about that a little bit to decide whether or not you believe that's the case but there's a lot of truth to that when you realize that a person who has a heart that's full of gratitude all the other things that'll spring from it that apart from a grateful heart you won't ever have it's hard to ever be a person of humility or of joy or of generosity or compassion or loyalty if you aren't a person who for starters has a truly grateful heart but unfortunately Gratitude is the thing that is rapidly disappearing as a virtue in our culture and in the church today. And it's one of those things that you may not have observed it, but I think in the next few minutes you'll have to agree that it is sorely lacking in our world today. I read recently about a Boston business consultant who was interacting with a lot of recent college graduates who were entering the workforce. And as he was dialoguing with them, he was just trying to help them understand sort of what was in front of them. And he said, I've observed something in all the interactions that I have with people who are already in the business world, experienced people in the business world who are now interacting with you, the younger generation coming out of college into the business world. And he said, there's one word that I hear again and again. It is absolutely the single most common word used to describe your generation as you step into the business world. And it starts with the letter E. And he said, can you guess what that word is? And so they all began to, to guess what it was. It's, it's energetic. No, it's enthusiastic. No, it's, it's excellence. It's, it's exceptional. No, no, no. And, and they used up all the E's they could think of. Kept getting the same response. No, and they finally said, so what is it? What's the E word that describes us? You, you can probably guess what that word is. It's the word in, yes. It's the word entitled. He said, those in the business world watching you step into the workforce have seen a real change. And it is a sense of entitlement. It's funny that y'all caught on to that. You didn't have to be told what that is. It's this sense of, I, I'm owed more. I, I should, you know, walk into the work world with no experience and should be given, a, you know, better job, better benefits, more flexibility, better hours, more, more time off. All of these different kinds of things that there is this tremendous sense of entitlement that exists. Uh, sadly, millennials have been labeled as the entitled generation. Now, I'm not here to pick on anybody today, and let me say on the front end, lest any of us who are not a part of the millennial generation want to pile on and go, yeah, shame on those young whippersnappers for being so, feeling so entitled and being so ungrateful. I would just remind you of this, that all of us were born essentially the same way. If we have ungrateful hearts or if we have an entitled mindset, it's because of how the generation ahead of us trained us. It's what they developed in us and so if the millennials struggle with that it's because the baby busters the gen xers and the the baby boomers have taught them to think this way and i know not everybody in the room's a sociology nerd so i'm going to talk a good bit about the different generations today let me give you a quick reminder about when we name these generations who we're talking about that this will probably cover everybody in the room. The generation that was born in the 20s, the 1920s up to 1945, is known as the silent generation. Tom Brokaw called it the greatest generation, probably with great reason. And uh, the generation that followed that is the one that everybody knows so well. The baby boomers were born from 1946 to 1964. It's that huge explosion in population when everybody came home from war and birthed babies. And we've got a lot of folks who were in that generation. My generation was born 1965 to somewhere, not everybody agrees on what the cutoff is, but it's somewhere around 1982. 
And for years they referred to us as the baby busters following the baby boomers. Nobody uses that term anymore. Uh, It's referred to as Gen X. Those are interchangeable, baby busters and Gen X. 65 to 82, the generation that followed us from around, some will reach back to 1980 or so, but basically around 82 or 83 up to around 2000 or 2002 is the millennial generation. There is no term yet, or, or some people refer to that as Generation Y, but most people call them millennials. And there is no term for the, the younger generation that's, that's under age 15. We haven't figured out yet what they are. They haven't assumed a personality yet. But there are really some pretty interesting differences between those generations. And so what the generation that I was just referring to, the millennials, are the ones that have been sort of targeted. And people will say of, of that generation that, oh, that they are, you know, so entitled and that they expect so much. And so it really does beg the question, whatever that generation is, is due in large part to however we parented them. And so what did we do that has shaped this generation to be different? And by the way, let me be the first to say there's a lot about millennials that's really interesting and encouraging. There's a lot that's very positive about the millennial generation, but it is hard to ignore the fact that there is this tremendous absence of gratitude. And you may say, why are you talking about entitlement? It helps in understanding a virtue to understand the opposite of that virtue. And the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. Wouldn't you agree? That that it is truly the polar opposite. And so how is it that we helped to foster such an entitled mindset? And a couple of things that I think helped to develop that is, for one, those of us in the Gen X and baby boomer generations, we tended to work a lot. Our generations probably put in maybe too many hours at work. And so a lot of times that created a lot of absent parenting, especially for us as fathers, a lot of absent fathers because dads were in the work world so many hours a week that we were absent from our kids, which also was a part of the contributing factor to the next piece was, and there were a ton of divorces. And those two things, being gone a lot and then the the family, the nuclear family being fractured, led to this need to compensate for that in some way, and we all know how we compensated. We just tried to make life easier for our kids. We tried to give them more stuff. We tried to make life just easier, and so we heaped more and more material possessions on them, and along the way, in trying to sort of compensate, we tried to make life easier by laying less on them. And so we demanded less work. We didn't expect them to go out into the work world. We didn't expect them to do any kind of heavy manual labor. We didn't expect them to do a lot in the way of chores. And when you add all of these things up, what you wind up with is young adults who think that they're supposed to have a lot and who don't who've never really had an opportunity to learn much in the way of a work ethic or a great appreciation for how you get to a point that you have earned much in life. Can you begin to appreciate how whatever's going on in the newest generation of adults that we have contributed in a big, big way to that? And oh, by the way, lest we pick on any particular generation, it's worth realizing that we tend to struggle with sort of our own version of entitlement. That after having worked a great deal, we've, most of us have created a pretty comfortable life for ourselves, haven't we? And it's sort of crazy just how much we enjoy all that we've sort of earned for ourselves. I mean, isn't it crazy how much we expect life today to be so comfortable? I mean, just at all different kinds of levels. I'm, I was just thinking this week about some of the things that I take for granted, but I beyond take them for granted. I wouldn't live without them. I mean, just little things like, do you ever just notice when you're watching TV how different that experience is from when you were a child? Like when you go to change the channel? Do you all remember the little round thing on the front of the TV? You used to have to get up and grab it and go clunk, 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 clunk to get to the next channel. And we had to clunk it several times in Brundage because you had to, you had to spin a ways to get to the next channel that you picked up because you could pick up four channels. And one of those really stunk. ABC was out of Columbus, and so it was mostly snow, and it took a three-man set of people to get the antenna pointed in the right direction. We'd have to put one at the TV in the den, one at the end of the house at the back door, and one at the antenna pole to turn that sucker. And the person at the door was responsible to relay information. It's getting better. It's getting better. Nope, too far. Turn it back. Turn it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We were high-tech in Brundage, you know. And then, of course, 
when you really knew you were arriving, you got that little square box that you mounted on there. It had a wire that went to a motor on your antenna. You could just turn the knob and turn the antenna and get rid of some of that snow. Who in the world would begin to live with that today? We not only want a remote control with no antenna, we expect to have a crystal clear picture in high def on a flat screen TV, right? And we feel like we're suffering if we have less than that. I mean, if you go stay in a hotel and you don't have a high definition TV, I mean, if you went to a hotel that had no remote and it had a a TV that was this deep and, you know, only had like a 25-inch screen. Don't you remember when that was the huge TV? It was the size of your washing machine, but it had a 25-inch screen. Now we're like, we hear that there are poor people in the world who only have 32-inch screen, you know, flat screen TVs. Do you just begin to realize how entitled our mindset becomes in so many respects? And so we've passed this on to a younger generation. And, and we have just protected a younger generation at levels that are just really kind of scary when you stop to think about that. I mean, do you ever just think about how much we've put the, a generation in a bubble when we raised our kids? To just think about when you got in an automobile and went somewhere. Don't you remember when we were kids? It was like the two best ways to get anywhere in a vehicle were in the bed of a pickup truck or the back window of a car, right? I mean, that's the two best places to ride. Today, I think you serve between 20 years and life if you transport a child that way. You need 17 seat belts. And, and you know, I think you're supposed to wear a car seat until you're 16 now. It's, it's crazy how much the world has changed. We've raised a generation in a bubble where we're supposed to protect you from everything that's hard or painful and we don't want to make you work for anything. And some of that comes from what we have experienced and what we've expected that we've passed on to another generation. And so what I want to talk to you today about is gratitude. Everybody say it with me. Gratitude. That's the attitude we're after today. Luke chapter 17 is where we're going to be looking. It's a story about gratitude and ingratitude. And it's probably familiar to you. Maybe not. But we're going to begin in verse 11 of Luke 17 where we read, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. I know those terms a lot of times don't mean anything to us, but it would have meant a lot to Jewish people in that day because Samaria is situated between Galilee and Judea. The real Jews lived in Galilee and Judea, and you had to pass through hated Samaria where the half-breeds lived. And so, oh, Jesus is in dangerous territory as he's on the border there. We hate the Samaritans. It's the attitude of the Jews. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. And they called out in a loud voice, which lepers are supposed to do. They're supposed to call out when somebody goes by. They're not calling out what they're supposed to. They're supposed to call out, unclean, unclean, stay away. But they called out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Thankfully, leprosy in our day is a disease that we know almost nothing about firsthand. What a, what a blessed time that we live in. It was about the most dread disease in Jesus' day. For a couple of reasons. One, it was disfiguring. If you've ever seen probably at best photographs of somebody who has an advanced case of leprosy, it, um, it affects not only your nerves but your skin. And it will not only turn it to just bleached white, but it creates all these this look of like granules on, on everything. So it's, it's very disfiguring. Once it's advanced, you almost look a little bit like somebody who has smallpox. So it, it was just an awful disease, and the people who had it, they believed in Jesus' day that you could just catch it really easily, almost like a cold, which you, you really can't. But um, they thought so in Jesus' day, and so the, that there was no treatment for it. So the only way they knew to handle it was, we've just got to isolate, quarantine those people. And so they made them always live outside of, of the community, and you had to stay a, literally a stone's throw away from everyone who passed by. And so you had a responsibility Leviticus 13 even called for it. Anyone who passes anywhere near to you, you must immediately begin to cry out, unclean, unclean, stay away to protect the other people of the community. So they lived lives of tremendous pain because of how it affected the nerves. It, it was really two extremes because it would be a very painful disorder until you completely lost any sensitivity there. And then it would just be a dead limb. And it, I mean, I won't go real far with this, but to gross you out, but a lot of times people with leprosy would wind up missing uh, fingers and toes because um, you're, they would all the time injure themselves because they get to the point they didn't feel any pain, and when you, when you have no sensation at all, you wind up cutting and banging and, and damaging stuff, and so then it's bleeding, and 
people with leprosy, you know, just living out on the ground or whatever, would often wake up during the night and, and would have like rodents just chewing off digits of, of their, their hands or their, or their feet. And so they literally would wind up just so disabled and disfigured by this terrible disease. So you get the picture that they have suffered excruciating pain. You can't imagine the self-image problem that you would have if you look like that. And now isolation at a level that none of us can relate to. I mean, we've all felt left out at different times before. But imagine for your the rest of your life, you're going to have to guard yourself against any other human contact except with other lepers. So that's how desperate these people are. You can't imagine anybody needier in Jesus' day than lepers. And so, you know, they would tend to hang together. And oh, by the way, thankfully, one of the blessings of the day is leprosy is being eradicated. In the 80s, there were about five and a half million cases of leprosy because there's treatments for both kinds of leprosy today. There are only a few hundred thousand, and that's quickly being uh, just almost totally wiped out. So you don't have to live in fear of that today, thankfully. That's a gift from God that we don't. But in Jesus' day, here are ten men who have begun to live together, and they have come to terms with the fact that they're going to be lepers for the rest of their lives. They've heard of Jesus and his healing power, and so I'm sure they're thinking, what could it hurt? This is probably the one guy we have any chance of getting any help from, and they begin to cry out for help. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. In verse 14, when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went... They were cleansed. I'm so intrigued. I'm I'm always curious to see when Jesus has an encounter with someone to actually watch what happens socially and physically in that encounter. What does he do every time he heals someone? Because there's never an ABC, one, two, three recipe that he always does the same thing. Very frequently, Jesus would touch people. He would even touch lepers when he healed them. People really had a mindset of if you were going to be healed, you had to be touched by the person who would heal you. And then that very clearly was power, you know, in their minds flowing from one person to another. And Jesus didn't do that at all in this story. I mean, he took a different route different times. I mean, you remember how with the blind man he spit in the dirt and made clay and, you know, the guy didn't get healed until he washed it out. Just It was different every time. And this time he doesn't go up and apparently doesn't lay hands on them and pray over them. He just says... Go to the priest, which when someone had been cured cured of a disease, if you had a disease, you would be considered unclean and you couldn't participate in life you know, at the temple or with other people until you were declared clean. And so the priests were the ancient equivalent of the CDC. You know, if you have some kind of disease that we've got to quarantine you, well, the CDC or somebody has to officially say, you're clean now, you can come back with the rest of us. Well, there was no CDC, so they used the priest. You had to go present yourself to a priest, and he had to say, You are actually cleaned from whatever it was that made you unclean, and now you can be back with the rest of us. So Jesus doesn't heal them on the spot. He just says to all ten of them, go to the priest and present yourself to the priest, which is really odd. Instead of having a real personal ministry time there. He doesn't make them well on the spot. And Luke is very Luke, who is a doctor, so he's he's picking up on the medical details here. He says they don't get well until they are on their way to the priests to present themselves, and they are healed as they are obedient while they're being obedient to what Jesus has told them to do. Now, this isn't the point of the message, but I just think we all not to miss it. That's a picture of how God works on our lives a lot of times, isn't it? That we go to God and we ask him to do something for us, and in response, we don't in that moment get what we ask for. How many of you have had that experience? God, no, I I didn't ask you to give me instructions of something to go do. I asked you to fix this problem that I have. They're saying, Jesus, heal us right now. And Jesus said, I think you need to go right now to the priest. No, we don't want to go to worship right now. We want to be healed. Heal us now. Jesus, no, I want you to go to the priest. Why should we go to the priest? Well, go present yourself to the priest to let them examine you. Why do we need to be examined? We know we have leprosy. We want you to heal us. No, go present yourselves to the priest. So many times in life, we'll ask God for something, and he gives us an instruction and waits for us to obey. And we're going, no, 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 you didn't answer what we asked you to do. And it's not until they were obedient to what Jesus said that along the way they were made well. And having been made well along the way, it's interesting to see how they responded to that. Verse 15, one of them, 
when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Boy, that's the proper response, isn't it? I mean, that's, we would all do that, wouldn't we? Don't you just know you would? Uh-huh. We all think that about ourselves. We'd come back and praise God. Threw himself at Jesus' feet, thanking him. And oh, by the way, Luke didn't miss this. He was a Samaritan. It's almost like, to all of us Jews, he's going, jab, you know, to all of his Jewish readers. And Jesus asked, wait a minute, we're not all ten cleansed? Now, it sounds like Jesus is just waxing rhetorical here. But the curious thing is, Jesus didn't see anybody healed. Just, again, such a curious exchange. I mean, he didn't see them get well. He just knew in his heart what was supposed to happen, and he's trusting that the Father made them well while they were on their way. And only one comes back, and he's like, well, this is peculiar because I'm so sure ten people ended up being cured. Were were there not others that got cured out of your group? And he says, so where are the other nine? Has no one returned to praise God except this foreigner? And then that one Samaritan said, he said to that one Samaritan, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Well, not a complicated story. If you grew up in Sunday school, you heard this story in Sunday school about the nine and the one. And Jesus in the middle of all this, who seems to be a bit dumbfounded about the whole thing. I mean, if you're Jesus, aren't you a little surprised? You just gave the most incredible life-changing gift anyone could ever receive. Short of, you know, an eternal relationship with God on earth. This is as good as it gets. Their lives have been changed. And he's thinking, I don't know. I thought you'd at least come back for a high five or something. I mean, not even just a, hey man, thanks. Appreciate that. Nothing. From nine of the ten. Just one comes back. And so really, the question for the day is just this simple. Will you be like the one or like the nine? In your life, up to now, and in your life in the future, have you been and will you be more like the nine or more like the one? Now, here's the thing I know. I think I know. I'm guessing every one of us in the room and everybody watching online, we are convinced in our hearts we are like the one. If Jesus did something major for us, we would be the first. We would be the exception that we would go and thank him and express our gratitude. But here's the question I would ask you about that. How many times have you asked God to do something in your life? And maybe it didn't happen as quickly as you had wished for, but he actually did it. And because it took some time for that to unfold, you never really went back and gave God the glory for that. You ever done that? I can't count how many times I've done that in my life. That I've prayed for and hoped for God to do something. And then it took some time and it didn't unfold exactly the way that I thought it was going to or exactly the way that I prayed for. But God made it work out. And by the time it did, without recognizing what I had done, I went, well, ain't that nice? I'm sure glad that worked out. Instead of going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you didn't let that go the way it could have gone. Thank you that you changed the course of things. Thank you that you never gave up. Have you ever done that? Nah, we're we're too spiritual for that. It's easy to be a part of the nine. The question today, will you be the one? The one who's careful to give thanks to God for what he does, to express your gratitude. But not just that. Will you be the one who is careful to express gratitude to the people in your life who've really made a difference? To the people who continue to make a difference? To the people who serve you, who serve your children? You think about the people along the way who've impacted you. The teachers, the coaches, the parents, the siblings, the friends, the the small group leader. Think about the people who've impacted you. Jackie and I were, were having our morning walk earlier in the week and just talking through stuff from you know growing up and just family life years past and just reflecting on some of the different things that impacted us for good and for bad. And um, you know, one of the things that, that I was just remembering was 
my dad, who is has always been a great provider, and, and I, I love my dad dearly, but he was a part of, of that baby boomer generation. Actually, I take that back. He was a part of the silent generation, but he uh, he was one of those that worked a lot. He, he worked a six-day week, worked a 60-hour week most of the time, sometimes more than that. And so until I got to be in high school where I got to work with my dad, I didn't get to to just be around my dad a great deal because he was always at work, it, you know, it felt like. And looking back on it, I never felt neglected. And a big part of that, some of that was because my dad was careful to, you know, plan trips and weekends and do things and, you know, be in church with us and take us to the farm on Sundays and stuff when he was off. But a big part of why I didn't feel neglected was because I had an older brother, five years older than me. His name's Ron. And uh, Ron always filled in the gaps when my dad was tied up. And I, I, you know, I was just telling Jackie, looking back on it, I realized how much my older brother was a father figure in my life. And how much he, he did to make sure that I didn't ever feel a, you know, a big thing lacking. That he took me places and did things with me. He took me hunting. He took me fishing. He did the things that you typically you know, might think of doing with your dad, but... Because dad was tied up, I got to do with him. The reason I'm telling you all that is to say, you know, it dawned on me as, as we're talking about that, and it helps that I've got a wife who will just say stuff real straightforward, like, have you written him? Have you called him? Have you told him that? And it just clicked for me. I'm like, you know what? There's a level of gratitude that I'm going to make sure I don't let this Thanksgiving pass, that I don't just spell out point blank to him to say, man, you made my life so different. I've told him at different times, but there's some things that I, I'm going to make sure that I don't let this Thanksgiving pass without telling my older brother, thank you for filling in the gaps and making sure my life has been as rich as it has been. Now, I say that to you because in your own way, in your own story, there have been people in your life who filled in the gaps, who have impacted you, who've been there for you. Maybe it was in your childhood or your adolescence. Maybe it's right now. Maybe it was when you were going through a dark season when, when you had lost a pregnancy or you were going through a divorce or you were recovering from the death of a parent and they were there for you. It's a big deal for us to be the kind of people who are the one instead of the nine who go out of our way to express gratitude to people for what they've done in our lives because unexpressed gratitude is useless. I, I know the truth of the matter is most of us think I, I'm really just a generally grateful person. I may not run around saying it to everybody, but I carry a lot of gratitude in my heart. Do you know what gratitude in your heart that's never expressed through your lips or your fingertips? Do you know what that gratitude is? It's just self-deception. It's ingratitude wearing the mask of self-deception. Do you follow what I'm saying? When I'm saying, I, I know I don't go around telling people as often as I should how grateful I am for them, but I carry a lot of gratitude in my heart for them. That is useless. Gratitude that isn't expressed is like seeds that never get planted. What use are seeds that, that stay in a sack in the barn all the time? They're useless. Gratitude that never gets voiced is just its like self-deception. You're not a grateful person if you don't express gratitude, kind of by definition. It has to be expressed in order for it to be gratitude. Are you with me? Unexpressed gratitude, call it whatever you want to, it ain't gratitude until it gets expressed. And so it's not enough to say, I'm really, I carry a lot of gratitude, I just don't, I don't express it. And I'm saying all this to say, it's been one of those weeks where the Holy Spirit's really had to speak to my heart on this issue and say... This is a major deficit in your life because I've always thought of myself as I'm so grateful and I, I take notice of the people around me. And I've kind of gone to the woodshed this week as I've been preparing for today with the Holy Spirit just showing me areas of my life where he's going, you haven't expressed gratitude at all. You've just given yourself a pass in. But I feel very grateful for that. And it's like feeling grateful doesn't count for anything if you don't express gratitude somehow. Express it to God. Express it to someone. So... I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and unpack the issue of, of an ungrateful heart, which I've realized is an issue in my own life and some real specific areas, by reminding you of maybe the most familiar story in the New Testament, certainly of all the parables Jesus told. It's probably the most familiar. Luke 15, you remember the story of the prodigal son. Everybody knows that term, and most everybody knows the story. But it's funny. I wonder how many of us know what the term prodigal means. heard that term all my life and never hear anybody talk 
you know, in conversation, anybody ever use the word prodigal? It actually means an extravagant spender. Somebody who just goes crazy with money. And so we know which of the sons is the prodigal son. A man had two sons, and the two sons represent really two ungrateful mindsets. I want to point out something about each of them because either of these can creep in and be an issue in our lives. The first son, the prodigal son, his issue was, I want it now. Everybody say that with me. I want it now. When do you want it? That was his problem. And I really hate looking at my own life and realizing how much his attitude I have about certain things. That there are just things I don't want to wait for. I want what I want, and I want it now. I can't think of any situation I feel that more in than when I walk in a restaurant. I don't know what my deal is, other than maybe I've just eaten up with some of the same thing. I cannot stand having to wait in a restaurant. I mean, like, wait to be seated. This is not a spiritual thing I'm telling you about myself. But it drives me bonkers. That's why I like the no-wait app on your phone for restaurants. I love it. That I can get in line before I get there so that the table is ready when we get to the restaurant. I'm like, that is genius because I want it now. But there are a lot of things in life. When, when I want something, I don't want to have to wait for it. I don't want to have to save for it. I want it now. That was the problem with the first son. Jesus went on to say, there was once a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property. When? Now. Usually, in most places, you wait until somebody dies before you collect the inheritance. Wouldn't you say that's the polite thing to do? I'm going to wait until you die before I collect the inheritance. And we saw a TV show the other night. What's, what's our detective show that we watched the other night, Jackie? With the crazy lady that uh, NBC, anyway. Anyway. But we love to watch the murder stuff, the real-life real murder stuff. And the lady killed her mother to get the inheritance instead of waiting for her to die. It's like crazy stuff. Well, this son didn't go quite that far. It's a really crazy story. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm sorry, chasing a rabbit there. This son, he didn't kill his dad. He just said, I'm just not going to wait for you to die. I just want the money now. And the really shocking thing in all this is that the dad says, all right, you can have it. You don't have to wait for me to die to get your half of the inheritance. Take it and run. And so the son takes it. And you know the story. He goes off to a far off place beyond the watchful eye of his father. And he spends it all. He blows it on wild women and keg parties and, you know, whatever else you can spend money on. He has a high old time. And probably in a matter of weeks or at the most months, he spends all of his half of what has taken his father decades to accumulate. Let that sink in. A father who has spent decades working putting back what little bit he can, trying to get ahead, trying to live on what he earns or a little bit less so that he can get ahead. And in a matter of weeks or months, the next generation spends it all in a blink. I want it now. That's the mindset of of ingratitude. And it really is scary how much the I want it now mindset has permeated our culture. Do you see it? I'll tell you the the easiest place to look to see what it, where to me it's most clearly manifest is I, I don't know how we fouled this up, but we did, that we now have created a scenario where it, it seemed for endless generations past there was a fundamental understanding that when you become an adult and you start out and you begin a family and a household and all, that you start at the bottom. Whatever that is, you know, in generations past, that maybe was you lived with mom and dad or you lived, you know, lived somewhere on the, the farm property or whatever, you know. In, in more recent times, you started out in an apartment and it maybe was a cruddy apartment. I know in my life, started out in a duplex on the train tracks and there was a reason that sucker was cheap, you know. He started out in a, in a used trailer for rent in a not so nice trailer park, you know. That was, that was just where, and we didn't think like, oh, poor old us. It was like, we're young, we're poor, and we're just glad to have a place to live. And that was just kind of what you expected in life and realized it's going to take years and decades to improve a standard of living. And you know where I'm going with this. That mindset does not exist anymore for a new generation. 
What does it look like now? I get to be 22, 25 years old, and what is the expectation? I should live in a house that's pretty similar to mom and dad's house that they live in now after they've been working for 20 or 30 years. And I certainly expect to drive a vehicle that's as reliable and as nice as what mom and dad drive. And mom and dad now are able to go on vacations where they visit foreign countries and they get in commercial airliners to go where they're going on vacation. And so in my 20s, I expect to take vacations like that. I mean, how many of us in the room, when you think back about your own life, I mean, how old were you the first time you ever got on a commercial airliner? How old were you the first time you ever left this country? How old were you the first time you ever went to a real resort for a vacation? It's getting really quiet. Like, you know, I'm, I'm meddling. I don't care. I just Let's just be honest about this. We've got to really deal with the, the reality of the problem. And we are a part of the problem. I mean, I was in my mid-40s before I ever saw an all-inclusive resort for the first time with my own eyes. Most of you are, are like me in a lot of these things. It's like you waited a really, really long time because you couldn't afford it. You couldn't afford it if you were going to pay for it in cash. And yet we've created a scenario where somehow we've developed a mindset of, uh-uh, I don't want to wait until I'm 45 or 50 or 60 to experience these things. I want it. That was the problem with the prodigal son. And that's reflective of a heart that doesn't have gratitude for what we have ever been given and what we do have now. Now, I think about my parents and especially my grandparents, and I remember this really incredibly archaic concept that they lived by. Maybe you've heard of it. You actually only did and bought the things that you could pay for. Have you read about it in books? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And if they didn't have the money for it, I mean, this is wild. You know what they did? They waited and saved. I've, I've heard about it and I've read about it. Don't you feel like that's the world we live in today? Like, these are such crazy concepts. You see, they hadn't invented these little plastic cards back then, apparently. They'd enable you to buy it. I mean, and if you, if you just had one of those cards, the cool thing is you could have it now. I mean, all it's going to cost you is 29% interest for the rest of your life. But, you know, you'll be retired still paying for that. But, but you can have it now. The world has been turned upside down because somehow along the way, Somebody offered us the chance to have whatever we want now. There's a second problem mindset, and it's not just about I want it now. It's the mindset reflected by the second son that says, I deserve more. Everybody say it with me with gusto. I deserve more. There you go. Some of you meant that. Well, you remember the second half of the story if you grew up in church where Junior, when he had spent it all, and he got really desperate. Oh, by the way, that's a whole other sermon right there. If you want to begin to help your children to overcome an attitude of entitlement and ingratitude, you've got to let the child experience what Dad did with Junior. Where he said, sure, you take it and you go spend it any way you want to. But then he left him. To live by the decisions that he had made. He let Junior hit rock bottom. He let him run out of money. He let him have no place to live. He let him get to the place that he couldn't buy a pack of crackers out of the Lance machine. He was broke. He was hungry. He was slopping pigs in a foreign country. Which, if you're not Jewish, it's, you don't immediately appreciate how low it is when you're slopping pigs. I mean, slopping pigs is bad enough, but when pigs are unclean, it's doubly low. And dad was willing to, to say, I'm going to let him get as low as he has to get. Because there's something that needs to be broken and changed in his life and in his character. And he can't get there unless he is allowed to hit rock bottom. And sometimes rock bottom is in the pig pen where you have no place to sleep. You have no money in the bank. You have no access to food. When we rob our children of the opportunity to fail, we rob them of the opportunity to learn character, gratitude, integrity, and a work ethic. Most of us in the room are the mamas and daddies. This is hard. I'm living this reality. This is a tough thing. 
Dad did it with the second son. But meanwhile, he's got the good son, what the world called the good son. The son that never caused any problems. The easy one, right? He stayed back at home. He did what he was supposed to do right on through. But that son, when Junior came back, repentant, desperate, wanting to become a servant in his father's house, when he sees, when the older brother sees his younger brother received with grace and warmth and generosity, he gets so angry and jealous. He didn't want to come to a party for welcoming Junior back. He wants to kick him out of the house. And he answers his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. Boy, don't you feel the emotion of that term? slaving for my dad and never disobeyed your orders yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends don't you hear the one thing behind all of that I deserve more this is a gracious father in this story this is a father who represents God this is a father who has always provided for his kids but when he sees when the the son the older son sees the grace and generosity of his father toward his brother he becomes so jealous and this thing that he's been carrying in his heart it just spills over through his words I deserve more than what you have given to me that's one of the clearest expressions of a heart that is filled with ingratitude. I deserve more. You know, I think about, there are a multitude of ways that this kind of thing is expressed, but one that, that looms so large to me today is I think back to like the generations that are past. I think about my grandparents and their generation. I'm sure many of you would, would say the same thing. None of my grandparents had anything close to an opportunity to go to college. That was just unheard of, Who you know. Just hardly anybody in their generation had access to that. They felt blessed that they even got to go to school and get a basic education. Both of my parents, who came from my dad, you know, from a farm outside of Clayton, and my mom from uh, a family that had very little, the youngest of seven kids, both of my parents had the privilege of going to college. My dad, it's looking back on it, it's unbelievable that his parents, who just never had much at all, sent all three of their kids to college. Now. There were some limitations attached. Had to hitchhike back and forth to Auburn all the years that he went. But got to actually go get a college education. And what an incredible privilege that was. Now by the time we came along. Didn't really think long and hard about whether or not we'd get to go to college. It was just sort of assumed in my family and sort of in our generation. That if you wanted to go to college and if you worked in school. You got to go to college. Now. Okay, that's a serious level of entitlement that's a problem that I never really wondered about whether I'd go to college. It was just a matter of picking the college. Now, I will say in that, when I look back at it, I I was like, in evaluating all that, I'm like, I'm going to go where there's the most scholarship money and where it's not going to cost my parents much of anything. So I'm going to make a choice that's got some financial responsibility, but I still assumed, well, I get to go to college. Work that down one more generation. It's no longer just an assumption about getting to go to college. What's the next layer that's been added to this? You know what it is. I get to go to college wherever I want to. In state, out of state, private, wherever. Mom and Dad, that's your job. To pay for my education at the collegiate level wherever I choose for as long as I want to go to school. Now, it never gets said that way, but you see the expectation that we've created. And I, I can't believe the stuff that I'm hearing from parents who are just going like, we're just in such terrible financial straits, and I just don't know how we're going to overcome the financial bind that we're in. And then you start talking with them, and a huge part of the equation is that they are currently sending or have recently sent their, their children through years of education out of state or to some private school where they're paying three, four, five times what they could have paid to get a college education if you had gone to a state school school or gone to Faulkner for a couple of years and then finished out at a state school. I know I'm meddling. I'm going to keep on. Do you realize how messed up that is? We have created a mindset that's like, well, you're not doing anything special for me. You're my parent. 
You're supposed to do this. They didn't come up with that on their own. We taught a generation to feel entitled and to expect more. But this mindset of more, man, it permeates so many different things. I I had a conversation. This ain't sermon illustration. I mean, this is just real life stuff. I had a conversation, actually multiple conversations, this fall with a a young man who's a friend and uh, somebody that I, I really think highly of, but he is... He's mid-twenties, and what he said, I think, is just so typical of, of this kind of thing of I want more, this mindset. And just, you know, in catching up at different times, um, we'd ask how things are going and how he's enjoying his job that he's been on for a year or two. And he's like, yeah, I love the work. It's, it's, it's good. It's what I want to do. I really think I could do this for a long time. But every time we talk, I could just hear this frustration. And, and the last time we talked about it, he just said, I... I think I'm going to quit my job. I really think I am. I'm like, well, why? You sound like you like the work. I do like the work, but I I am not fabricating this. This is honestly what he said. Bright guy said, it's five days a week. I have to work Monday through Friday. And it's set hours. I have to be in at 9 o'clock and don't get off until 5. And it's five days a week. And he said, I only get three weeks of vacation. That is an honest conversation. And so he quit his job. Yeah. I mean, we're all laughing and going, for real? Yeah, for real. Because when we think about it, those of us who are a few years older are going, that's the job we were hoping to get one day. We all wanted that job. You don't have to be there until 9. You're off at 5. You don't work weekends. You get three weeks of vacation a year. That's the job we were all waiting for. But you see the thing of, I just don't think I want to stay with that. I want more. I want more vacation time. I want more flexibility with my hours. I want. Do you begin to see what I'm talking about? It's... It's huge. I, I, I may have shared this before, but the whole thing that's taking place, we really need to dial into it. Not because we want to be like you know looking down on a generation, because there's like I said, there's so much that's really positive about the millennial generation. But we'll understand ourselves better, those of us who are in the older generation, if we can kind of watch what's happening here. I don't know if you're a fan of the show Survivor. I love the show, but this is the best season they've ever done, in my opinion, because they have taken. A group of Gen Xers and a group of Millennials, and they've pitted them as the two tribes against each other. And they've really played off of that to try and help you understand the difference in how the generations think. And it has been so intriguing to watch the differences between the two. And the Millennials are just so in your face about it. They love to get in the camera and say, those Gen Xers, they're like our parents. They expect this and they say that. They think we're supposed to be working and doing all. And it's just really been intriguing to learn. And so in the very first episode of this season... If you if you don't watch Survivor, the first thing you have to do on the first day is you got to get really busy because you have to build a shelter because it it gets cold at night and you get rained on and stuff and so it, everybody knows they're in the thirty something season so if you've ever watched Survivor everybody knows day one you work yourself silly the first day or two building a shelter so it's interesting to watch this really young group of millennials and they're just kind of chilling out the first day on their beach at their camp and there's nothing provided for them in terms of shelter you got to build it. And so they kind of mess around for a little while, like, you know, we probably ought to build a shelter. And then they, they look at each other and they're like, you know what, I'm sure those Gen Xers are over there working and building a shelter, but that's just not who we are. They've always told us, you've got to work first, but we don't believe that. We believe that if you believe in it enough, it'll come to you. That's the exact quote. If you believe in it enough, it will come to you. And what we want right now is we want to go swimming. So the entire tribe goes out into the Pacific and they swim for the rest of the day. And their camera people are just filming this whole thing, and just time lapse. And now it's pitch dark, pitch dark. And they come back ashore and it's like, whoa, that was fun. I guess we have to build that shelter now. And they like go over and they're just in total darkness. And they're like, well, this is stupid. We can't build a shelter in the dark. And then the storm comes and it's freezing cold. And they just have cameras on them all night long as they're just freezing to death. And it's like, okay, as somebody from the older generation, I'm just enjoying the fire out of this thing. You know, it's like, where's that shelter that's going to just come to you if you believe in it? It's like, 
Guess what the reality is? It's not about if you believe in it enough. It's if you've got a mama and a daddy who know that you want it and they always provided it for you. Oh, shoot. For Survivor forgot to bring mama and daddy on the trip. That's how entitlement works. Moms and dads create the sense of that. We, so we've done that. We've created 10-year-olds who think that they need better smartphones and 16-year-olds who think that they're being neglected if they don't get new cars on their birthdays. And we're the ones who've taught this. We're teaching them to be one of the nine instead of to be the one. So I want you to just take a moment. Look in your outline. If you don't have it out, pull out your outline. And I just want you to do a very simple exercise. I want you to consider for a moment in the area that says identify areas of ungratefulness. I want you to consider these three areas. First of all, material or financial blessings. And ask yourself the question, am I always wanting more? And do I feel dissatisfied with what I have? Deep down in my heart, do I know that I would just be happier if I had a house instead of an apartment? If I had a newer car? If I had a new wardrobe? If I could just get those granite countertops? Do I have a heart that's always wanting more, that's dissatisfied with what I have? Am I really contemplating trading in a vehicle because I just would be so much happier if I had heated seats or a built-in iPod plug-in? Am I wishing for more money, for better trips, for more stuff? If so, call it what it is and check the box. I struggle with material and gratitude. How about relationships? Do you find yourself just really grateful for the parents who raised you? Grateful to have family around you? Grateful to have a mate or children? Or do you find yourself more often frustrated with them and wishing that they were less of this and more of that? Do you struggle with relationship and gratitude? How about circumstances? Do you feel frustrated and I don't like my job and I don't like my house or I don't like my apartment or I don't like my hair or my lack of hair or I don't like living the single life? I just never get the breaks. Do you find yourself so often frustrated about and bemoaning your circumstances and I want you to just take a moment and be completely honest. Of those three, where do you struggle the most with having a heart that's truly contented and grateful? Because we can't begin to address the issue unless we realize where we struggle with ingratitude. And the bottom line is we need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Now, how do you do this? I'm almost done, but I just want to point out two or three things to help us at this. Because it is never your nature to do this. We are not grateful people by nature. These are Christian virtues that have to be worked into us. And so, first of all, I would just point this out, that we have to learn the discipline of turning every blessing into an opportunity to give thanks. Do you remember in the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord? Do you remember the recurring line in that? I won't sing it for you because that wouldn't be a blessing. <laughs> you can give thanks for that today. <laughs> but it says, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn into praise. You know why it's so important to do that? It's not because it cultivates the virtue of gratitude in us but because if we don't do that you have to realize that blessings that don't result in praise will result in pride if we don't recognize where that came from and that it was a gift we'll whether we realize it or not we will begin to think more and more like i earned that or i deserved that i, I should have gotten that it's going to go one way or the other. You're either going to have a more and more grateful heart that says, Wow, God, you are so good that you would lavish that on me. Or I'm going to have a heart that says, I got that because I worked hard. I mean, I got the life that I have because I worked hard. I've got the relationships that I have because of who I am and how I live my life. It's one or the other. It either is I give thanks for it all the time or I develop pride as a result of it. Paul is kind of the ultimate example of the kind of attitude that we're talking about, who, who learned to give thanks no matter what the circumstances were, to express gratitude. Because, I mean, we all can agree, can't we, that no matter how good or bad it looks on the outside, that there's, there's just tons of stuff to be grateful for in life. Paul models that in the, the letter to the Philippians. Four little chapters start to finish, just thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm full of joy. And he's rotten in prison. I mean, just in a terrible situation. And he's saying, I'm not saying this because I feel neglected, for I have learned to be satisfied with what I have. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have more than enough. And I've learned the secret so that anywhere, at any time, I'm content. 
Whether I'm full or hungry, whether I have too much or too little, I have the strength to face all conditions by the power that Christ gives me. It's this attitude that says, hey, whether, whether I've got great hair, no hair, plenty to eat, not enough to eat, a great house to live in or a jail cell to live in, I've still got so many good things in my life that I can choose to be thankful for and I've learned how to be grateful for those things. Solomon summed it up well. A part of this in Ecclesiastes 6, 9 when he says, Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. That's a good word, isn't it? We'll say that one again. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Never let the things that you want make you forget the things that you have. Uh, I remember years ago reading someone who was just giving advice about big financial decisions that we make and how buying new cars is one of the biggest places we'll get in financial trouble. And he just made the point, he said, you'd be amazed how many times when you just, Jim's over here as a car salesman, so he's not appreciating me saying this, but uh, how, how many times when you're just set on buying that new car that he said, if you'd go out and spend 100 bucks detailing your current car, how many times you'd just decide, Actually, I didn't realize my car was still so nice. You'd enjoy your car for a few more years. It's just feeling kind of familiar and worn that there's a lot of things that are that way. Just to appreciate what you have. How many times do you look at a closet full of clothes? Some of you did it this morning. Looked at a closet full of clothes and said, I don't have anything to wear. We've all felt that way. I did something yesterday, and I am not going to tell all of this to you because of shame. I was, we were getting ready to go to a wedding, and I was ironing my clothes, and I was thinking about this sermon, and I was looking at all my clothes in the closet, and I stopped. I can't believe I'm telling you this much, but I counted how many shirts and pairs of pants, Jackie's shaking her head, I had hanging in my closet. I am not going to tell you what, what it came to, but I will say I realized that I could put on a clean shirt every morning without ever washing my clothes and I would be deep in 2017 before I would need to wash anything. And before you judge me too much, go home and count your shirts. A lot of us have a lot more than we realize and we need to enjoy what we have. Now, in my own defense, a lot of it was passed on to one of my children and I like to buy secondhand. I'm wearing a secondhand shirt right now. I like buying from the secondhand store. But even then, I was convicted because I'm like, God, it ain't so bad. I mean, I like to shop secondhand. And he's like, yeah, but you're not content with what you have. You've got more shirts now than any human being should have. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Proverbs 15 says, happy people always enjoy life. Better to be poor and fear the Lord than to be rich and in trouble. But realize happiness has nothing to do with money or possessions. It's a mindset. Happy people are the grateful people. Gratitude leads to happiness. And it goes back to something that I said earlier. Don't just feel gratitude, express it. Every good gift comes from God. So as First Chronicles 16 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So wherever you are in life, the starting point is to give thanks for what you do have. Are you sick of your job and wish you had a better job? Give thanks to God that in a time when a bunch of people don't have jobs that you do have a job. A job that you may not like, but you have a job. Are you sick of your house or your apartment and all the problems that you have there? Stop today and give thanks for the fact that you have a roof over your head and air conditioning and heat. Are you so fed up with that car that you keep having to take into the shop? It gets old, doesn't it? But it puts you in the top few percent of all the people in the world that you have an automobile that's yours. We can either be frustrated with what we don't have or we can be grateful and give thanks for what we do have. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And a final reminder is this. Gratitude makes poor people rich and ingratitude makes rich people poor. It's not the happy people who are thankful. It's the thankful people who are happy. And on that note, would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness. The better we get to know you, the more we realize that your heart is the heart of a giving father. And you have given us so much more than we deserve.
or when we're honest, we realize so many times we've been like the nine and we fail to give you thanks or sometimes even recognize that it was you who supplied, that it was you who cared for us. It was you who always has provided. And this week, we want to pause and say thank you, but we don't want it to end with a thirsty celebration. We want to learn to be a people who truly live with gratitude all the time. Holy Spirit, would you enable us to do that, to see the hand of God in all of the good things in our lives? And would you help us to live with true gratitude for that? Why don't you take a moment right now just from your heart to give thanks to God for what he's poured out on your life. Father, we thank you for the people, for the resources, for the homes, the automobiles, all the things that you put around us that show that you are a loving provider. But above all, we thank you for your love and for the gift of your son, our Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for us so that we could know forgiveness, peace, and a relationship with you. And today we offer our prayers of thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.